Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Life Over Matter podcast. I'm Evelyn. I'm your host. I have been reading to you the Surrender Experiment, and uh, it's part of a very large series that uh, I've read by Michael A. Singer, who is a New York Times bestselling artist and amazing at what he does. I uh, was completely unfamiliar with his work up until the time of this podcast, and I started doing some research into them as we had some parallel interest. And then I fell into this whole series of books that are madly successful. And today we're going to be in chapter 19. Now, if you listen to the podcast regularly, remember that these have nothing to do with one another other than the uh, commonalities between some of the subject matter we discuss in the podcast. So you don't have to listen to all of the books if you are a fan of the podcast or vice versa. You can listen to either one and still understand them perfectly. Uh, for those of you who haven't listened to the podcast authentically, uh, the podcast itself is about life's journey and figuring out what it all means and how everything is connected and trying to live your best life by learning from the mistakes that I've made. Okay, and understanding the interests that I have and what's going on in my life, right? Uh, because I found that a lot of the things that are going on in my life at any present time are going on in a lot of other people's time too uh, in life. You know, the curiosities that you have about why did that happen and timing of things and how could I have made this better and how could I have made better choices? And, you know, then the curiosities, like everything being connected, everything shaped the same sometimes, you know, uh, ironies and uh, coincidences, you know. Um, but that's the podcast content, right? And then I found myself referencing a lot of literature that I had been going through. You'll see in a lot of the authentic podcast material that I reference a lot of articles and internet studies and things like that. So I stumbled upon this series, as I was saying earlier, and now we're at the Surrender Experiment. Today, we're continuing on with Chapter 19. If you're just tuning in today and this is your first time, please go back and listen to starting for the very first Untethered Soul and then Living Untethered, which is the second book in the series. And then the Surrender Experiment kind of wraps it up and says why he wrote all these books and where he got this knowledge from. Okay, so without further ado, Chapter 19 of the Surrender Experiment. Acceptance, acceptance, and more acceptance. My mind remained very peaceful during my drive across the country, but I faced a serious challenge to my vow of acceptance the moment I arrived home. As I drove through the woods onto the interior field, instead of the characteristic silence, I heard the buzz of a circular saw. I then saw Sandy and my friend Bob Gould donned in carpentry aprons and climbing on a structure they were building on my land. It was one of those rubbing your eyes in disbelief moments. I asked what was going on. Sandy cheerfully informed me that she was building a house, and Bob Gould had agreed to help her. I don't recall the demeanor of my voice, but I reminded her that this was my land in which she was building a house. Again, very cheerfully, Sandy replied that she was laying no claims to the house and that it would be mine when she decided to leave. She obviously had worked it all out in her head and had no problem with it. I decided I'd better go home and meditate a bit before responding. Imagine what that voice in my head was saying. Oh my God, how dare she make a decision like that without even asking me? I don't want another house on my land. I don't want anyone else to stay out here. So why would I want another house? How in the world does someone make a decision to build a house on someone else's property without ever asking them? 
And on and on it went. But by then I was well trained on how to calmly observe these thoughts being created by the preference driven mind. After all, if I had wanted another house on the property, that voice would be saying, what a miracle, God had stepped in and started building me a second house without me having to do a single thing. To me, it didn't matter what the voice was saying. I knew the core of my being was that I was not going to give him the time of day, not to mention the run of my life. If I had a choice in being between using this real life situation to get my way or to free myself from being bound to my way, I'd choose freedom every time. That was the essence of my experiment with life. If it's down to a matter of preference, life wins. So I went back up the hill, strapped on an apron, and helped them build Sandy's house. It felt so good to be building again. This time around, I was not a greenhorn. I was a carpenter. The difference is amazing between the first time you do something and the next. I felt like I knew what I was doing, and that gave me a sense of confidence and inner strength. I wasn't working on the house for Sandy or myself. The flow of life had placed me in the situation. It was during the building of Sandy's cabin that I first started the ritual of offering my work up to the invisible force that was guiding me. I was not in charge, yet life continued to unfold as if I knew just what it was doing. I would serve that force. Call it what you want. God, Christ, Spirit. These were no longer just names of something to believe in. The events that were pulling me through life were tangible and real to me. Inwardly, I began to offer everything I did up to the universal force. All I wanted was to return home to that beautiful place deep inside of me. If it followed the invisible hand of life when it would take me there, then so be it. Sandy's house was very simple. It was similar to what I had thought we were going to build from my place. Her 12 by 16 foot cabin had no electricity, no plumbing, no inside siding, and the window openings were covered with only screens and some plastic. It only took about six weeks to build and cost almost nothing, but she loved it. I smile now when I look back at my initial resistance. I could never have imagined how important my life experiences would end up being tied to that cabin. Meanwhile, summer was over and the time to start my classes at Santa Fe was rapidly approaching. I had been true to my commitment of not allowing a single thought to enter my mind about what I was going to teach. How would I ever know what life was capable of if I was always in control? I walked into my first class at Santa Fe, completely open to whatever would unfold. As the students filed in, I simply quieted my mind and asked myself, do you have something worthwhile to teach these students? In my heart, I knew that I had wealth of knowledge that would be both interesting and beneficial to their lives. So I took a breath, stood up, and just started speaking. I couldn't have known it at the time, but at the exact moment was laying down the groundwork for the next phase of my spiritual journey, becoming a teacher. The words just flowed out. There was no prior thinking involved. The first session laid out the roadmap of what we were going to do in the class just through a curriculum that had been decided beforehand. It was similar to when I was writing that economics paper in my van in the woods. Except this time, I was watching a continuous stream of inspiration turning into a powerful lecture. I was not doing any of this. I was just aware of it. As the semester progressed, this kept happening class after class. I was amazed by what was being taught in these classes. It was as though all the knowledge from my schooling plus all that I had learned through introspective meditation and the relentless watching of the voice was being woven together into a cohesive whole. 
The premise of the course was centered on the possibility that one underlying truth exists in the universe, and all of man's knowledge was just looking at this truth from different perspectives. The exploration of that premise would involve physics, biology, psychology, and religion. What was the possibility that they were all saying the same thing? I had never thought about things this way before. In fact, I'd spent my time learning to not make thoughts a pastime. How could each class come out so perfectly without my doing it? Nonetheless, the presentation was unfolding on a class-by-class basis right before my eyes. The success of the classes was overwhelming. I would start the semester with 20 students in the room, and by the end, the count had doubled. I remember the one class where I literally had trouble entering the classroom. 20 students were registered and another 40 or so were sitting in class or listening from the hallway. People would just keep bringing their friends. I was still into being quiet and didn't want all this to become a distraction in my practices. So I tried to isolate myself by coming to school just before class and leaving right afterwards and not attending any faculty meetings or school functions. It didn't matter. This was the 70s, and I was teaching universal thought in the midst of the consciousness revolution. Over time, students and their friends began to show up for the Sunday meditations at my place. As if that were not enough, those classes at Santa Fe led the groundwork for another very spiritual flow of events. This time it was regarding, of all things, my doctoral dissertation. I had been telling Dr. Goffman my life had taken me far from the field of economics, and I had no intention of writing a dissertation. Nonetheless, one day he made me a promise, as a personal favor to him, that I would turn into something, anything for him to read. I had great love and respect for Dr. Goffman, and I saw it as an act of surrender to acquiesce his wishes. That very night, I sat down on the floor of my house, lit my kerosene lamp, and asked myself if I had something to write that was worth such an enormous undertaking. It only took a moment to realize that I did have something very important to write, and I would love for Dr. Goffman to read it. It seems that life had just given me the perfect opportunity to write about that voice in your head and the oneness of behind all of the science and religion, just as I had been teaching in my classes at Santa Fe. With that as a topic, I was filled with inspiration. Though I knew it wouldn't be accepted as an economics dissertation, I put my heart and soul into what I was writing. As it turned out, the finished document had an unexpected destiny of its own. A professor on my doctoral community had a publisher contact me, and within a year, my dissertation was published under the title, The Search for Truth. 35 years later, that book still sells copies every month on Amazon, a fitting tribute to the acts of surrender that brought it into this world. What is important from all of this is that if I'd listened to my own mind, none of this would have happened. By following the flow of life, instead of my own preferences, I was now a carpenter, a teacher, and a published author. Inwardly, I had grown as well. The sharp line I had drawn between spiritual and non-spiritual had begun to fade. The energy I experienced while teaching my classes at Santa Fe was the same energy I was dealing with in my yoga and meditations. In meditation, that energy would flow upward and lift me away from my everyday self. 
When I stood in front of the class, the very same energy would explode into a passionate, heartfelt lecture. Not only did I begin to see all of this as the flow of spiritual energy, but I also began to see that there was no difference between coming to class and to teach and driving home to do my meditative practices. I was teaching those classes because an amazing flow of events had put me there. I was driving home because an amazing flow of events had put me there. None of these destinations was decided by me. They were the result of my letting go of myself. Little by little, the fabric of my life was composed of the results of my surrender. I was becoming surrounded by a life that had been built for me, not by me. In my wildest dreams, however, I could have never imagined where this was going to lead me. Chapter 20 the most important thing I was ever asked to do. The summer of 1973 ushered in some very interesting changes where I'd lived. Through no effort of my own, many of the five-acre lots around my property were being purchased by folks drawn to a back-to-nature lifestyle. Unsurprisingly, many of these people were into some of form of meditation and yoga, I was still holding on to my self-concept of a meditator wanting solitude in the woods, so I had little interaction with my new neighbors. I must admit, however, that my afternoon walks became more interesting as various rough-sawn cabins began to spring up in the woods around me. A man named Bob Tilchin purchased the property directly behind my house. I had not known him before, but he was into yoga and Sufism and was a very gentle soul. He hired my friend Bob Gould to help him build his house, so it all felt like family. One day, Bob Tilton came over and asked me to do him a favor. He was pen pals with an inmate named Jerry at Union Correctional Institution, a maximum security prison about 40 miles north of Gainesville. Bob had promised to visit this inmate once in a while, but now had to go out of town. He asked me if I would visit Jerry while he was gone. This is a very strange request for me. I had no prior experience in this area, and I was still very protective of my attempts to live a solitary life. As the voice of my thoughts said, no, the voice of my lips said yes. I had no idea what it would be like to go into a maximum security prison to meet a total stranger, but I was about to find out. I drove up to the prison one Saturday morning and met Jerry, a young black man, in the designated visiting area. We spent a few hours together discussing topics similar to what I'd been teaching in my classes. He seemed genuinely interested, and he was very intelligent as a young man. He had been doing meditation for some time, so we spent a while meditating together. Jerry expressed his appreciation for the visit and asked me to come back. I had noticed that other than Bob Tilchin and me, no one else was on Jerry's approved visitors list. Our meditation together had been amazingly deep, and I felt overwhelmed by peace when I left the prison. Somehow, being in that setting had touched something very deep within me. Before I was even out of the gate, I was looking forward to coming back. When I returned to see Jerry for the second time, he had a surprise for me. He had so enjoyed our visit and our meditation together that he had created a list of five or six other inmates who wanted to meet for a group meditation. I contacted the authorities and found out that such a group meeting would be only possible as a religious service. Jerry considered himself a Buddhist, and I had done Zen Buddhist meditation, so I started what was probably the first Buddhist group in the history of a North Florida prison. 
We met in the chapel every other Saturday morning, and the whole scene was quite surreal for someone with my background. When I arrived at the prison, I would pass through the main gate and was surrounded by double coils of razor wire. I would then pass through two more gates before I was searched and patted down. Shortly thereafter, a call would come across the loudspeakers in the various cell blocks. Buddhist! From a very quiet place deep inside myself, I watched that voice inside myself say, How in the world did I get here? The group grew over the years, and when Jerry was transferred to the Florida State Prison, I also did a group there. It may have been acts of surrender that originally put me into those prison groups, but once I was there, it was my heart and soul. Whenever I would go into the prisons, I would feel a powerful increase in the spiritual energy flow within me. And my meditations were much deeper when I sat with the inmates than when I sat for hours at home by myself. I didn't understand what was happening, but I looked forward to every visit as an experience of spiritual upliftment. I ran the groups pretty much like the classes at Santa Fe. I did not plan any of these sessions. I just let the energy give the talks. The men were able to relate immediately to the notion of the talkative voice in their head. They were very receptive to learning how to quiet that voice and deal with the inner patterns of anger, fear, and strong drives. The inmates' deep-seated sincerity about their spiritual growth made those prison groups one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. A single request from my neighbor Bob Tilchin, to which I had initial resistance, grew into more than 30 years of working with the incarcerated. The men in my group became part of my extended family, and they continued to live in a place deep within my heart. It was the summer of 1973. In the most unlikely of places, my heart center was learning to open. I was being taught how to serve. This is not something I would have come up with on my own. My whole being throughout my path to self-realization was about meditation. Fortunately, life knew better, and she was starting to guide me away from myself through service to others. We are now beginning section three of the Surrender Experiment, From Solitude to Service, Chapter 21, The Call of a Living Master. Summers are brutal in Florida, even in the woods. My house had no air conditioning, and with a solid wall of glass facing west, it did not exactly have a positive solar design. I still had a few months left before my classes at Santa Fe had started again mid-September, so I took a drive back out to Northern California for a visit. Before returning home, I got wind that Shelly, my ex-wife, was living at some sort of yoga center in the San Francisco area. I managed to get the number and give her a call. I would not seen her for a few years, and it fascinated me that I'd gotten so deeply into yoga, and evidently, so had she. I drove down to the Piedmont and found where Shelly was staying. It was great to see her again, and my heart felt very open. She began to show me around the beautiful house that had served as a meditation center for a small number of residents. We went upstairs to see the meditation room, and once again, life caught me completely by surprise. Scattered around the room were photographs of a yoga master they called Baba. I'd never heard of him, but there was no reason I would have. I'd been living in the woods of northern central Florida for a few years by then, and he lived in India. The pictures of that holy man were mesmerizing. I could not take my eyes off them. 
The energy flow inside me welled up to the point between my eyebrows and a tremendous peace came over my whole being. I asked if I could meditate there for a while. Shelley nodded and went about her business. I meditated in that room for hours with shimmering energy coursing throughout my body. The whole room seemed to be filled with that energy. Something was going on that I didn't understand. I only knew that I was being drawn into deep meditation without my normal struggle. I stayed in the room for a very long time, and when I finally came out, it was time to bid Shelley goodbye. That was certainly not the visit I had imagined. What had started out as a very personal trip, life had managed to turn into a powerful spiritual experience. If that had been all that had transpired from the visit, it would have been fantastic, but it was only just the beginning. I returned home in early September to find someone I didn't know staying at Sandy's house. Evidently, Sandy had gone on a trip and allowed a friend, Rama Malone, to stay at her place. Rama was very outgoing and vivacious. She was filled with excitement and immediately drew me into her world. The first time I went up to meet her, she invited me into the cabin to show me what she had done with the place. Very enthusiastically, she beckoned me up to the loft. I climbed through the sawn ladder, and when my head cleared the opening, what I saw had almost knocked me back downstairs. The entire loft area was covered with pictures of the same yoga master that I had just encountered at Shelley's place. Now, I believe in coincidences, but this was twice in a row on opposite sides of the continent. In 1973, there were simply not that many people in America who knew of this holy man in India. It felt like he was following me. Rama immediately started telling me that Baba, Muktananda, was planning to come to America next year in the spring and I should invite him to Gainesville. At first, I thought we were having a fanciful conversation until I realized that she was dead serious. I took a deep breath and tried to reason with her. I reminded her that I lived alone in the woods and that I'd gone out of my way for years not to attract people. How could I be in a position to write to India and invite a highly respected yoga master to a small town in north central Florida? There was no reasoning with her. She insisted that I write a letter to India on Santa Fe Community College letterhead and invite Baba to stop in Gainesville on his way from Atlanta to Miami. I thought it was a crazy idea. My mind kept telling me that there was no way Baba would ever come here. I actually felt embarrassed to write the letter and send it off to India. But what choice did I have? I could either listen to my resistant mind or recognize that life had brought me in contact with this great yogi, giving me a deep experience sitting before his picture, and then stuck an impassioned devotee onto my own land to force me to invite him to Gainesville. Ultimately, I surrendered and mailed the letter. Some moments later, I received a response telling me that someone would come to my place to discuss the possibility of a Gainesville visit. When he arrived out here, I was surprised to be meeting a very professionally dressed young man. Apparently, he was just as surprised to be meeting a hippie-type character living alone in the woods. You could tell that he wasn't at all that impressed. He began to explain to me what it would take to host a week-long visit from Baba and his entourage. They would need facilities for his staff of up to 20 people, a room large enough for 50 to 100 people for daily sessions during the week, and a weekend retreat site that could house up to a few hundred people. He was very skeptical, skeptical about my ability to arrange everything, and who could blame him? I was a part-time teacher at a community college earning $350 a month, not exactly the credentials they were looking for. In the end, he told me that I was welcome to see what I could arrange, and they would get back to me. 
It certainly didn't sound promising, but at least I didn't get a definitive no. Before he left, I asked him an important question. If his group was trying to get people interested in Bubba, how exactly did they promote him on this world tour? I didn't think an Indian saint who spoke no English would attract that many people. All he told me was that Baba was a very powerful Siddhya master, and people would want to meet him. I didn't understand what that meant, but I figured I'd find out later. A few months went by, and we were given a tentative date for when Baba might pass through Gainesville. January 18, 1975. The excitement about a possible visit by a world-renowned yoga master only served to accelerate the energy around my classes and the Sunday services. Each week, things grew until I was forced to build a small addition onto my house to fit more people. With the publication of my book, The Search for the Truth, in the spring of 1974, the energy was fanned even more. Rama and Sandy had both come and gone by the spring of that year, and Sandy's house sat empty until a young woman named Donna Wagner moved in. Donna was finishing her degree at the university when she started sitting in on my Santa Fe classes. Though just a few years older than the other students, Donna was more centered and mature. She had a very deep understanding of what I was teaching, and she came to most of my classes and all of the Sunday services. For about a year before she moved in, it seemed like time and again we kept bumping into each other in town. These chance meetings happened so often that I began to wonder what was going on. Donna started to help organize the Sunday group after Sandy left. She would often stay in Sandy's house on Saturday nights to help set up for greet for set up for and greet the people on Sunday mornings. Eventually, she just stopped going home. If I had known then that she was moving out of a nice condominium her parents had purchased for her and into this tiny cabin in the woods with no plumbing or electricity, I might not have been so quick to let her move in. If I had known then we were destined to fall in love, get married, and have a beautiful daughter together, given my mindset at the time, I definitely would have not let her move in. It would take a few more years of learning to surrender before I'd be capable of dropping my spiritual self-concept enough to accept the special relationships that life had had in store for me. Chapter 22. Shaktapat We had so many things to take care of if we were going to host a visit from Baba. None of us had done anything like this before, so we had to learn things as we went along. First, we found a summer camp in the Ocala National Forest that could easily handle a large weekend retreat during its off-season. Next, we put the word out that we needed a very large house for Baba's 20-person staff and the weekday meditation sessions. As a college town, Gainesville is not known for its large mansions, but someone connect contacted me and offered us the perfect house for the entire month of January. Things were definitely falling into place. The weekend retreat was going to be the clincher. If we couldn't get enough people signed up, Baba wouldn't come. Donna and I had to make hundreds of individual phone calls and send mailings all over the state to attract enough people. It took real surrender for me to hook up a phone at my house and use that as the contact number on, the all, on all the flyers and phone messages. We were passionate about getting the word out, and we had a tremendous response from all over the state. For years, I had thought that a spiritual life was about spending every day in silence and solitude. I was now running around getting all of this work done. Yet somehow I felt more open and more connected to the energy flow than ever before. 
I kept my morning and evening meditations, but the hours in between were devoted to my classes and bringing Baba to Gainesville. I had surrendered just enough to where the flow of life was no longer something I chose to give into. The flow had taken over my life. It had gone from subtly guiding me to running me. My mind kept telling me that after this was over, I would go back to my solitary lifestyle. As usual, my mind was wrong. Before Baba came to Gainesville, we received an invitation to attend his December retreat just outside of Atlanta. I was anxious to meet him, plus it seemed like a good idea to know what to expect when he came to Gainesville. The next month, about six of us packed into my van and we made a trip up north. When we arrived at the retreat site, we were ushered into a large hall with 50 to 60 people. So we began four of, our, of the most intense days of my life. I remember the first meditation session with Baba. We were told that he would walk around amongst us while we were meditating. It was so dark in the room that I couldn't see anything. Yet at some point I found a strong presence behind me. It got stronger and stronger until I realized that Baba was standing right beside me. He touched the point between my eyebrows, exactly where I always felt the energy flow. And then he moved on. We had two of these meditation sessions each day. Each time I could definitely feel strong energy as Baba walked around and behind me. But that was about it. It was hard to sit in that room all day. I would try to meditate just to get some privacy, but I was unable to get inside myself. Instead of my meditations getting deeper, I was locked out altogether. I was pretty much how I felt all the time, closed down. I was too spacey to think. My body hurt, and that voice in my head was driving me crazy. I was determined to sit it out, but I couldn't wait until it was over. It went on like that until the final day, and I was very confused, to say the least. On the final morning, I decided perhaps I wasn't being open enough to how I was relating to Baba. I had come to pay my respects to a great spiritual teacher, but he wasn't my teacher. Yogananda was my teacher. I decided for that this last day, I would even let go of that concept and just surrender completely to the experience in front of me. While the program was going on at the front of the hall, I sat in my seat and started to do Baba's mantra. I repeated Amnama Shavaya over and over again. Before I knew it, I was very deep in meditation. All outer sounds had ceased, and as my and so did my mental chatter. I was in a place I'd never been in before, deep inside my heart. I felt like my heart was a giant cave that was protecting me and loving me. I was completely entranced and at peace. It soon became time for the evening meditation session where Baba walked around and tapping people. I found myself being pulled back into that very quiet place within my heart. While I was meditating, I felt Baba walk up behind me. The power emanating from him was very strong. Even though my eyes were closed and I was facing forward, I could feel the energy of his hand reaching out toward my head. The moment the palm of his hand reached above the crown of my head, what felt like 10,000 volts of electricity jumped from the base of my spine to meet his hand. It happened as fast as a bolt of lightning. In an instant, I was no longer in my body. Me, the one who lives in there, the one who looks out through the eyes and hears through the ears, the center of conscious awareness that notices the thoughts and the emotions. I was no longer sitting beside doing those things. I was in a state of absolute panic, trying to hold on with all of my might to my connection with the body. 
the upward rush of that much energy, the upward rush of that much energy had dislodged me from where I normally sat within myself. I was experiencing tornado force winds trying to blow me out of my body, and I was struggling to hold on for dear life. No matter how hard I tried, I could not pull myself back into the body. It was one of those survival moments when pure fear opens you up to superhuman strength. It didn't matter. I could not even begin to pull against that force. I have no idea how long the experience lasted, but when Baba felt I'd had enough, he simply rubbed his hand across my back. The moment his hand physically touched my mid-back, everything stopped. I immediately fell back into my body and began to get somewhat oriented. The first thing I noticed was my heart. It wasn't beating, it was fluttering like the wings of a hummingbird. My first thought was, this is not good. Hearts don't last very long like this. The moment that thought formed in my mind, Baba reached in front of me and rubbed his hand over my heart. Instantly, my heart began beating normally. I was stunned by the experience and the power of this man. Who was he? How could he possibly have such control over my energy and my metabolic functions? I felt so humbled to be in his presence. I've never felt so completely unburdened in my life. What had I been doing? Fasting, meditating, and struggling with myself for so many years. With a single touch, this man could bring about such transformation. At that moment, I understood what was meant by a Siddhya master. Baba did not belong in this world. He was from somewhere else altogether. <laughs>